This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the feds are moving ahead with their controversial Bill C-69, rejecting many of the Senate's proposed amendments. Is there still a chance to improve this bill? Also, child marriage in Canada. It's something that still occurs quite frequently in Canada, especially here in Alberta. A proposed ban on single-use plastic items, some perspective from the restaurant industry. A new report asks some important questions about cyber warfare and whether there's a case to be made for countries like Canada to go on the offensive. Plus, singer, songwriter, producer, guitarist, and founding member of the Stampeders, Rich Dodson. I'm trying to process this news today concerning Bill C-69 and what exactly it means. Look, it's, it's no surprise that the federal government wants to get this legislation passed. But are they prepared to, to reject most of what the Senate came up with? How attached are the liberals to the original version of C-69? Which I, I think to, to any open-minded individual should be a non-starter. Look, I mean, this should be a nonpartisan issue. Bill C-69, as originally written, has all kinds of problems. And it's not a right-left or a conservative-liberal thing. It's just a bad bill. So the Senate, to its credit, actually proved to be useful for once and came up with a whole suite of amendments that proposed some meaningful changes to Bill C-69, which gets it closer to something that could be workable. Now, the Senate passed a lot of amendments, close to 200 amendments. And even as uh, Senator Paula Simons admitted to us, there was no expectation that the government accept all of those recommendations. In fact, some were almost contradictory in some ways. So it kind of gave the liberals an opportunity to take some or most of the recommendations and improve this bill. So the word we're getting today is that the liberals intend on rejecting most of those amendments, which sounds worrisome. But it does mean that they are going to take some amendments, which is potentially encouraging. But what it does seem like, though, beyond the merits of any or all of these amendments, is that I think the liberals want to turn this into a political fight. They're maybe trying to set the tone, set the stage for the election. Here's what the prime minister said today about C-69. C-69 is all about making sure that uh, we improve the process that failed under the Conservatives, under Stephen Harper. They were unable to get big projects approved because they sidelined Indigenous concerns. They didn't work on environmental responsibility. We know that by creating a process that gives certainty, that demonstrates uh, working with Indigenous peoples and responding to environmental concerns is an integral part of being successful in our resource development, Uh, we're going to move forward. Now, the Conservatives still seem to think that the way to get big projects built 
is to ignore Indigenous peoples and ignore environmental concerns. Well, that didn't work for 10 years under Stephen Harper, and it's certainly not going to work now. That's why we had to change the process. So you see what I mean? Conservatives are bad. Stephen Harper was bad, etc., etc. So this is more about framing, I think, the upcoming election campaign. They're really trying to defend this bill or why they're rejecting a lot of these amendments. Now, as it happens today, the Canada West Foundation has put out a new report going through each of these amendments and what they, they intend to do and how it would change the bill. And then, look, in a lot of ways, change the bill for the better. So if you want to better understand this, you can go to cwf.ca. You can take a look at the report for yourself. But joining us to talk about the report, about the bill, where we go from here, very pleased to welcome to the program Martha Hall Finley, President and CEO of the Canada West Foundation. Martha, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. There were a lot of amendments uh, that the Senate passed, uh, I think almost 200 amendments. So it's interesting timing. You have this brief out today on um, what these amendments speak to. What's your sense of, of where things stand here today? Well, a, f- a few things, actually. First off, this, this characterization that these amendments were from industry, uh, as if that's a bad thing, um, right, off, right off the bat is a mischaracterization. A whole lot of these amendments were not coming just from industry. Um, and frankly, there are, you know, industry does need to be listened to. It's a big part of the Canadian economy. But a whole lot of other groups, including the Canada West Foundation, trying to be as objective as possible, looking at a piece of legislation that we support the intentions of, by the way, mm-hmm but was drafted so badly that would have uh, incurred a number of unintended consequences that really would have, have rendered building almost any significant infrastructure, not infrastructure, not just pipelines, um, but transmission lines, anything large in, across the country, very, very difficult. Um, so, so one, this is not to be portrayed as an us and them. There was an awful lot of work put into how can we make this bill actually better? Um, it's also, you know, the Senate has worked incredibly hard on this. It was handed a terrifically difficult challenge because, frankly, the House of Commons didn't do its job. This is a bill that would have that that will have a con- huge consequence for our economy, natural resources. The only House of Commons committee that looked at this bill was at the Environment Committee. It was a cursory review, and so virtually none of the work that needed to be done was done until it arrived in the Senate. And so, thank goodness, we have a, a whole lot of senators who've actually worked really, really hard. A lot of independent senators, uh, in particular. And to be clear, it was a Senate committee that supported all of the amendments. Mm-hmm. Those amendments were then supported, voted in favor of by the entire Senate. So when the House of Commons, in effect, abdicated its responsibility, it's important that the Senate was there to actually do this work. And they did do a lot of work and I had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to speak with one of Alberta's senators, Paula Simons, uh, about, you know, her thoughts on this, why she felt it was important to, to pass these amendments. Now, interestingly, uh, she says today that the government is prepared to accept 62 of those recommendations and change sort of amend 37 of the amendments. So that would still represent some potentially significant changes to C-69, depending what those amendments are. So is is this still an improvement on the original well i can say that an awful lot of people who actually went in there recommending these amendments uh would have preferred much more mm-hmm. um 
there was a great sense of let's be realistic, water in our wine, let's figure out how we can, you know, be reasonable, nonpartisan. Um, and so to some extent, you know, I've heard some folks in the, on the, in the government say, well, we, you know, we've, we're willing to accept 48% of, of these amendments. This is not a question of percentages. Mm. It is absolutely a question of the House didn't do its job. The Senate has worked incredibly hard to come up with these amendments. There's a reason for the others, you know, for the, all the ones that they're saying no. Our view at the Canada West Foundation has was that that package of amendments was actually, if you look at what those amendments were trying to accomplish, in fact, very objective, legitimate improvements to how the bill would work. It's, it's certainty in certain areas, removal of, of, of uh, political discretion in certain areas, tightening up of timelines in certain areas. I mean, these were not a basket of partisan amendments. They were very much across the board um, uh, what we felt were, were, were significant, practical improvements to the legislation. And so this... Yeah. You know, we're, we're picking and choosing the language of, well, we're refusing almost all of the so-called conservative amendments is rendering this a partisan debate when it should be anything but. Well, and, and I wonder then if, if that has anything to do with the timing of the election, if this is political strategy uh, that the government thinks that they can frame this a certain way uh, ahead of an election as opposed to what we think is best for the country. Oh, and, and, and there's no question, uh, Rob, and that, and that's what's so frustrating because this is the, probably the largest, most, uh, consequential piece of regulatory legislation in this country for a decade. Mm-hmm. The, the potential impact on all sorts of areas of our economy. This is not just an oil and gas piece of legislation. It will, it basically render transmission projects, uh, uh, unbuildable. And for all those who are supporting renewables like wind and solar, of which I am one, I mean, I've been a solar power user for 20 years. That's wonderful, but you have to get that electricity from A to B. And if you can't build transmission lines, that's kind of shooting yourself in the foot. There, it can affect, it will, it, the potential for having an effect on all sorts of, uh, the, uh, parts of the economy, as you well know, mining, oil and gas for sure, but electricity, a whole lot of those sectors also employ people across the country in a whole lot of, su- uh, supporting and supplying industries. So the consequences are huge. When, when the first word, first language that comes out of the government is, well, you know, we are, we are uh, not accepting 93% of the conservative amendments. My reaction is these amendments are not partisan. They should not be taken as partisan. They should be looked at objectively. And frankly, when there's a reaction coming from the government, my answer is actually it should be the elected members of the House of Commons. Right. And so, you know, the P- prime minister's office cabinet can, you know, come to its conclusions, but it has to be the members of parliament. And my hope is that the members of parliament do their duty and actually look at these amendments in their entirety objectively, even though there's an election coming around the corner, this is simply too important for the country. Well, indeed. One of the important aspects of all of this, of course, the question of Indigenous consultation, which, as we've seen in recent court rulings, is is obviously a matter of the utmost importance. The, The Prime Minister seems to be implying today that some of these amendments, or at least the ones they intend to reject, would water down the, the requirement for Indigenous consultation. Now, is is there anything to that? 
What's really interesting is that more and more Indigenous communities are speaking up about their desire to manage prosperity instead mm-hmm. of poverty. And and it, good for them because there's no question there's been a frustration. You know, you knew that these voices were out there, but hesitant to speak out against others. You know, Indigenous communities not wanting to be seen to be voicing contrary opinions to other Indigenous communities. But enough of them are, are speaking out and have been. And that's why I say the Senate amendments, these Senate recommended amendments, are not industry uh, alone. There's they, a number of significant representatives of uh, representatives of significant Indigenous communities have also been saying to the senators, we don't support C-69. In fact, a number of them have, have said, just kill it entirely. It's so bad. Others have said, but look, we're, we're trying to work. These are amendments that we would be able to support. So the Indian Resource Council, you know, a number of, you know, Chief Bill Fox, Treaty 8, the, the, the whole group of Indigenous communities across the country um, that are now very vocal in saying we don't support C-69. We actually don't support some of the things that could end up re- resulting in interminable additional court delays. So, um, I think that, you know, as, as somebody said to me not too long ago, the whole duty to consult on the part of government needs to be duty to consult not just with those who oppose uh, building things, but right. those who support them as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, there, there's now pretty well-established legal precedent that, that there is that obligation on government just to suggest that uh, a piece of legislation could override that, that precedent. That, that seems like a strange assertion, at least, well, you know, on the part of the government. Yeah, and there's no question. Uh, Section 35 of the Constitution, which uh, of the uh, of the Constitution, the Charter, which has established this duty to consult, is really important. And it has been, in fact, frustrating as some of those decisions have been. The Northern Gateway Federal Court of Appeal, the TMX Court of Appeal mm-hmm. decision, um, Federal Court of Appeal decisions, they were very clear in what was required in terms of that duty to consult, but. Again, the duty to consult cannot be restricted to those to consulting with those who agree with you. Duty to consult requires consultation with all of the Indigenous communities affected, and more and more of them are speaking out and saying they simply do not support C-69. Yeah. Well, and and talking about precedent, I mean, certainly one of the points that the Canada West Foundation has made is that we run the risk of really setting back the clock, that if we're throwing out uh, our our previous system, we're bringing in C-69, that we're throwing out a lot of precedent, and we could have some very lengthy court challenges as a result. Do do any of these amendments help address that, and and are we in danger then of, of rejecting those meaningful changes? Well, un- unfortunately, Rob, and, and you've been doing your homework, I, I, that's fantastic, because those are really difficult issues. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the big aspects that we, we believe will, in fact, jeopardize the jurisprudential certainty that we now ha- significantly have um, are not even included in the amendments. Um, so there remain concerns, and this goes to the point about these amendments, this package of recommended amendments, do not cover by any stretch all of the concerns that have been raised. So, you know, we, we at the Canada West Foundation remain very concerned 
about even um, even amended what will happen in terms of uh, court challenges after the fact. But at the very least, this this package of amendments does address other significant concerns that we had. As I said, the the certainty, the reducing the level of ministerial discretion. You know, pointing out that that when you have something that's so important for the economy, for the financial health of the country, it shouldn't just be the minister of the environment that gets to decide. You know what projects get to go ahead and which ones don't. It should be, in fact, a combination of ministers. Things like that. When you look at them, they only seem reasonable. So it really, you know, our call to the members of parliament who have to look at this is please do so in a nonpartisan way. Please look at what those amendments really are doing to determine whether they are in fact uh, really improvements, which most of them we believe are. Well, let's hope so. People want to read a summary uh, of these amendments. Uh, There's um, a summary posted, cwf.ca, the Canada West Foundation. Martha, thanks so much for the insight and really appreciate making some time for us here. Oh, thanks to you, Rob. That is Martha Hall Finley, President and CEO of the Canada West Foundation. You might also say the best leader the Liberal Party of Canada never had. Some really interesting thoughts from Martha Hall Finley on what's at stake here around C69 and kind of the dangerous game that the government is playing at the moment. Now, when you hear the term child marriage, you probably think of something that goes on in other parts of the world. The kind of situation that countries like Canada need to be speaking out about. What's interesting is that we do, except it's not just something that goes on in other parts of the world. In fact, it's something that goes on right here in this country. For example, going back to the year 2000, here in Alberta alone, almost 800 marriage licenses for children were issued. So why on earth is this legal in Canada? And how can we possibly speak out about it internationally if we're not dealing with it here at home? So Alberta has the second highest overall total uh, of these marriages, but the most per capita. Joining us to talk more about this is uh, someone who uh, has been researching this issue, uh, Alyssa Kosky. Is an assistant professor at McGill University's Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and Occupational Health. Professor Kosky, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. We talk about child marriage, and it's something you've you researched uh, for quite some time, both in terms of the situation in Canada and, and the U.S. In, in the Canadian context, what are we typically talking about? Well, the United Nations defines child marriage as any marriage before the age of 18. Mm-hmm. So that's our fairly arbitrary age cutoff, but that corresponds pretty well with Canadians' legal age of majority. So we're used to defining childhood that way. The problem is that our Civil Marriage Act permits anybody over the age of 16 to marry. So we're allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to get married if their parents consent. So if we talk about a child marriage or we talk about these licenses that have been issued, it it may be a case of one of the participants being under 18. It's not necessarily or automatically both being under the age of 18? That's right. Okay. We count it if any one party is below the age of 18. Yeah. Do we have any idea what kind of a breakdown there would be in terms of both participants being under the age of 18? It's the, a real rarity. Okay. In the vast majority of cases, we're talking about a minor girl being married to a husband who's over the age of 18. 
in many cases, substantially older. So across the country, we see that in almost 40% of child marriages, this is a, a girl under the age of 18 who's getting married to someone who's at least five years older than her. Wow. And in many cases, well, not many, but in the most severe cases, someone as much as 20 years older than her. Jeez. So the vast majority then of the, the minors we're talking about are, are girls, not boys. That's right. Yeah. Across the country, the vast majority of married children are girls. It's over 85% in every province and territory. And so the, these laws apply in every province and territory then, don't they? Yeah, it's a federal civil marriage act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why would it be then that, that Alberta would have the second highest overall total, but the highest rate in the entire country? That's an excellent question, and one that I don't have an answer to at this point. Um, It actually came as a bit of a surprise. As part of our research, we looked at what had been occurring in the national conversation around early marriage in Canada, and much of it focused so far on religious minority communities in British Columbia and Quebec. So we were fairly surprised to see Alberta pop out as having the highest incidence in Canada, Mm -hmm. and that's something that we plan to look at more closely. Does this seem to be more predominant in certain communities, or does this kind of run the gamut? I mean, maybe in some cases this is religious, maybe in some cases this is a boyfriend-girlfriend, an early pregnancy, uh, something along those lines. Do we, do we have any understanding of the demographics? It's not restricted to any particular part of the country. Child marriages have occurred in every province and territory over the past 20 years. Our research doesn't allow us to delve into the motivations mm-hmm. for the marriages, We only have counts, and we're able to look at how these patterns are particularly different for boys and girls. This is particularly a problem for girls in Canada. How does Canada compare to the United States, then? We find that child marriage is rarer in Canada and the United States. In 2006, we're talking about approximately one of every 10,000 kids being married in Canada. Whereas in the United States, that's closer to five of every Mm 1,000. So there's quite a difference between the two countries. Does it seem as though we we have kind of a contradiction then in our policy, that this is something we would criticize abroad, but it's something that that our law explicitly allows for? That's one of the reasons that I was interested in this question. In 2017, Canada adopted its feminist international assistance policy, And one of the explicit aims of that foreign assistance is to fund programs that aim to end child marriage in other countries. But the laws around marriage in Canada are very similar to the laws around marriage in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, but nobody was talking about how common child marriage is at home. So there is a very clear discrepancy between what we're advocating abroad and what we're actually doing here. Does that uh, necessitate, you think, a a change in the law? Well, I think raising that marriage age to 18 would bring our domestic laws in line with our international commitments. Mm -hmm. Right, and I I think most people would probably assume that people getting married are the age of 18. You're entering into a contract, but uh, we we have this loophole, this exception, where if if the parents sign off on it, then, then suddenly it's legal. That's it, and I think it's time for a national conversation on why we allow that. Why is it that we permit children to marry? And that's an exception to the normal limitations that we put on the behavior of children. Mm -hmm. 
marriage is in theory a lifelong arrangement. So why are we allowing children to marry at an age when we don't believe they're mature enough to smoke or vote for elected officials? Yeah, it does seem strange. I I do wonder, though, and and depending, again, on the circumstances, I mean, certainly you look at um, the community of Bountiful as an example. Leaders of that community have been accused of uh, participating in, being involved in marriages involving girls, in fact, even younger than 16. I I do wonder, then, if, if those practices exist whether the the law would necessarily address that, a change in the law would address that. Well, it's certainly possible that marriages that aren't licensed could continue to occur. Mm -hmm. But what we're talking about with our study are almost 3,500 marriages for which marriage licenses were granted. Marriage certificates were granted in Canada. And by and large, a change in the law would change that and set an important precedent. Yeah. And another reason why it matters, and I was reading this, that the proportion of girls who marry before 18 is used as a quantifiable measure of a country's development progress. What is the connection there? So globally, the United Nations actually looks at this statistic, the proportion of girls who marry before the age of 18, and use that to sort of gauge a country's development progress. Usually we're talking about countries in poorer regions of the world. So they measure this annually to see if we're making progress. If that percentage declines, it's assumed that things are getting better. Um, but we don't usually measure it in Canada. Because Canada has foreign policies that you know, fund programs to end child marriage abroad, we kind of get this implicit pass, and the practice isn't evaluated at home. Yeah. Is there, I mean, is there a reluctance to, to change the law? Why would there be a reluctance to change the law? You know, I'm not sure that it's actually been part of the conversation until recently. Yeah. The minimum age for marriage was raised to 16 in 2005. Prior to that, it was 14 really? throughout most of the country. But that's some time ago now, and I'm not aware of what the, the political conversation was around choosing to raise it only to 16 and not all the way to 18. Well, I mean, I suppose that's an improvement, but yeah, why, why stop there? Um, very interesting. Uh, Professor Koski, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here today to talk about this. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. All right. That is uh, Professor Liz Koski at McGill University who's been studying this issue for some time now. So since the year 2000, across the country... Over 3,300 child marriages, lawful, license-issued child marriages in Canada. Are we okay with that? We have uh, recently switched to drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic, uh, sorry, away from plastic towards uh, paper um like drink box water bottles sort of thing. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. Is it mean to keep playing that uh, whenever we talk about this issue? It's kind of become the uh, anthem to this issue in a way. Look, I, I think there's some serious issues to talk about here when it comes to our use of plastics or single-use plastic items. I think the, the question of, well, the, the steps we're all taking individually to, to deal with that is a pretty relevant question, and it was a pretty horrible answer, as you can tell, that the prime minister gave. Not, you know, we've, we've stopped using straws, not, you know, we no longer buy plastic cutlery. Just a very pained description of something that may or may not exist. I'm still not sure. Uh, water boxes. But that was part of the announcement this week uh, that the federal government intends on banning certain single-use plastic items 
by around the year 2021, maybe later. And part of the challenge right now, then, in, in judging this, the merits of this policy is that we don't really know the scope of it. What, what items specifically are we going to ban? When is this going to happen? How are we going to enforce this? Are we going to put the onus on consumers, on industry, on restaurants? I mean, how is this going to work exactly? And what about the unintended consequences? If you say we're going to ban this product, does something else fill the void that is perhaps equally or more problematic? So there's a whole lot of questions around this. But like I say, there is the underlying issue that, well, shouldn't we try to reduce our use of plastics? Even if Canadian plastic isn't ending up in the ocean, it's ending up in landfills. Maybe needlessly. So obviously, keeping a close eye on this is the restaurant industry, and it's something that, that they are dealing with in the meantime, not waiting around for government to take action. But joining us for some thoughts on all of this, Mark Von Schellwitz, Vice President for Western Canada for Restaurants Canada. Mark, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, good afternoon, Rob. Pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I mean, from your organization's perspective, I mean, this, did this announcement seem to come out of nowhere, or what, what was your initial reaction to it? Well, actually, we welcomed uh, the commitments from the federal government to take further action on plastic waste reduction as an opportunity to develop a truly nationally, uh, you know, a national uh, path forward to collaborate, you know, in collaboration with industry, because uh, we do need to reduce Canada's plastic waste, but we also need to support innovation, and we have to promote the use of affordable and safe alternatives, because, you know, restaurants across the country are already working hard to navigate a complex and often contradictory patchwork of regulations around single-use items while balancing the needs of diners that are increasingly seeking convenience and delivery options. So, uh, you know, food service businesses must be able to continue to meet the needs of their customers in a way that's accessible and safe, yeah. as well as sustainable. Right. And so, I mean, short of whatever it is the federal government has in store, I mean, what, what sort of steps have restaurants of the industry been, been taking? Well, certainly, I mean, restaurateurs, uh, more than half of our members have already taken steps to, to reduce their environmental footprint. And in a survey last year, over 90% of restaurateurs are doing more uh, to uh, uh, to reduce their, their plastic use, uh, single-use items. But the issue is right now, uh, you know, we've got just uh, a bunch of contradictory patchwork bylaws. So we welcome a, uh, a national approach to this, but it's got to be a whole society, multi-pronged approach, you know, recognizing the need for consumer education, for consistent waste management infrastructure, innovative technology for replacement items, and, uh, you know, because we still have to service our guests, and increasingly, you know, uh, Last year alone, there was an increase of $4.3 billion, which is a 44% increase in those takeout and home delivery options. So, you know, you've got the trend of the consumers going one way, that they want that increased uh, convenience, uh, and yet, you know, we've got people promoting a ban on the other side. So the way to, to solve this is, uh, you know, once again, through a holistic, multi-pronged approach that involves consumer education, innovation, and uh, and uh, waste infrastructure. I mean, we've got members right now that are using a bunch of recyclable and compostable products only to find out later that they're ending up in landfill anyway. So they're incurring those extra costs and finding out that uh, it's actually not reducing their environmental footprint because the infrastructure isn't there. Mm-hmm. In terms of what sort of items might fall under this ban or, or on whom the onus is going to fall, I mean, did you have any clarity at this point as to, to how this is all going to work? 
No, and I guess it's uh, right now it's just a, a plan with not a lot of detail to it. So, you know, we're not sure which exact products they're targeting. And, and you know, in some of those issues, I mean, it's a very, very uh, uh, complicated, diverse sector. And, you know, what may work for some may not work for others. Uh, as you know, we've already had a bunch of members who've replaced plastic straws uh, with uh, paper straws or yeah. on request only. Uh, you know, we have certain, you know, uh, people saying, hey, bring your own cup, we'll offer you a discount. So there are those yeah. initiatives that are underway. But the the issue there is, of course, too, we do have in certain municipal bylaws that are in place, certain operational difficulties with some of these bylaws that are in place. For example, uh, bringing in your own uh, reusable bag. Well, we have also health authorities saying that, you know, you've got to make sure that you're food safe. And, and for our members, uh, food safety is of paramount uh, importance. So what do you do as a member when you've got a bylaw saying you have to accept these reusable bags, yet the health authorities say, no, 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 you can't because that's a, a food contamination issue. So, you know, it's really important for us to be able to continue to, to service our guests uh, in a safe uh, way that uh, is hygienic and uh, uh, you know, we have to find those alternative products uh, to plastic that we can recycle, but we have to make sure that those are actually recycled and don't end up in the landfill anyway. So, uh, I mean, our members are willing to do their part, and Restaurants Canada is as well. We've already developed a, a single-use item reduction guide for our members, as well as an environmental sustainability guide, and they're taking their action, but they can't do this alone. It's got to be a whole society, multi-pronged approach to, to really solve this issue. Right. Well, in, in a way, I think you're kind of making the case against a, a sweeping ban, or that at least there, there are other things we could do short of a ban that might make a meaningful difference. I, I, I do worry that if we're just going to, across the board, come in and say straws are now banned, that that leaves probably to a large extent industry to figure out how exactly that's, that's going to work, what it's going to replace straws, what to do with existing you know, quantities of straws. It just it would seem to cause a lot of challenges, I would think. Yeah, and there have been challenges, uh, for example, in some of our consultations with various municipalities, you know, talking about the straw ban, and now all of a sudden those municipalities are coming back to us saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, you know, companies like A&W have already replaced their straws, and now they're saying, ah, but you have to have some bendable plastic straws available for, you know, certain people with disabilities right. and certain products, so, you know, what works in theory when it comes to practice, all of a sudden saying, hey, you know, bubble tea, all these different things, you do require something that's a little... Uh, better than a paper straw to be able to service that market. And, uh, uh, you know, so those are all of these complicated uh, uh, operational issues that have to be dealt with in the context of, of reducing single-use plastics. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the decision that the restaurants make, I mean, straws are there because the customers want them. Uh, plastic or styrofoam packaging is there because people expect to be able to order something and, and bring it home, right? So there's still a need, and it's going to be a need, to, to service those, those, those needs, those very basic consumer needs. And I just wonder then, you know, what, what alternatives do we have right now? You're absolutely right, Rob. And then I guess that's the challenge the industry is facing right now. We've got this growing, you know, home delivery, online oh, yeah, delivery, exactly. uh, a, a sector of the industry which is growing exponentially. And we still have to make, find ways to, to service those guests, but we have to do it 
in a way, again, that takes a, a multi-pronged approach and, and you know, has the time in to make sure that we have those alternative products available and that those alternative products are actually being able to be recycled. Because, as I mentioned before, one of the biggest frustrations from our members is sort of like, okay, we're, we're switching to some of these more compostable, recyclable items only to find out later that the, the municipal infrastructure isn't there to deal with those and they end up in yeah. landfill anyways. Well, that's not solving the problem. We need, uh, we need those technological innovation to, to find those alternative products, but, but certainly a ban is, is just not an issue. Uh, uh, you know, it's not uh, uh, feasible when you've got your consumers going in the direction where they want that increased takeout and, and, and delivery um, meal. So, you know, when you see these huge numbers, it, it really is a challenge for industry. We want to do the right thing, and we are doing the right thing where we can, uh, but there are certainly some obstacles in the way, and, and that's why, you know, we're glad to see that uh, we certainly think a national approach to this is far superior than these municipalities implementing sometimes contradictory bylaws to deal with this. So, yeah. so we appreciate that. And, and I think the, the key thing from the, from the government side, whether it be provincial, federal, or municipal, is, you know, there's got to be the infrastructure there and there has to be some real public education because you have to remember that our members, uh, once the guests leave their establishments, we have no real control over what they're doing with that plastic waste. So, so again, you know, consumer education is a key component of this as well that has to be done and and uh, you know the, the various levels of governments have to step up to make sure that that happens as well indeed much more at restaurantscanada.org mark thanks for joining us here today appreciate your perspective on this my pleasure rob take care mark von shelwitz uh, president uh, vice president for western canada with restaurants canada restaurantscanada.org representing the restaurant industry and their thoughts and concerns about what this might all mean Certainly the fear of a cyber attack is something that uh, the Canadian government, our various uh, defense agencies, intelligence agencies, uh, should be concerned about and on guard against. But is there a case to be made for fighting fire with fire? Should we be able to go on the offensive when it comes to cyber attacks? Should that be a part of our arsenal? Now, that's a pretty big question. As noted in a new study today from the School of Public Policy, at the University of Calgary and the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, the Canadian government is now openly discussing the possibility of making cyber weapons part of its national official national defense strategy. So what would that entail? And then what kind of uh, unintended consequences maybe does that create? Well, joining us uh, to discuss this new report, which examines some of these uh, pretty important questions, very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Ken Barker. He's a professor at the University of Calgary, uh, professor of computer science. He's also director of the U of C's Institute for Security, Privacy, and Information Assurance, and is the author of this paper published today. You can find it at policyschool.ca. It's called Cyber Attack. What goes around comes around. Uh, professor Barker, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much. I'm pleased to join you. Well, when we talk about having potentially this offensive capability, I mean, what, what does that entail? What are we even talking about here? Well, essentially what you're talking about is uh, exploiting flaws in software and hardware um, that exist in uh, someone's computing system, uh, computer system, and uh, essentially finding a way to break through the security protocols that might be in place as a result of those flaws and subsequently doing damage. And there's lots of examples of that, like ransomware and malware and viruses, et cetera, et cetera, are all examples of how your computer could be attacked. Right. 
I mean, we're, if we're, we're talking about a, that kind of offensive capability, I mean, we, we I think people might recall the, I guess it was Stuxnet, it was known as the uh, U.S. Yeah. Uh, and, and Israeli uh, project to, to, I think, basically weaken or take out Iran's nuclear capability. I mean, is that, is that the kind of thing we'd, we'd be talking about? Uh, that's certainly a really good example of it. And, and Stuxnet is an excellent example of one of the challenges with this kind of technology. Uh, Stuxnet uh, was probably developed by the U.S. and Israel jointly as a mechanism to cause uh, harm uh, to um, to equipment uh, within a nuclear facility. And uh, the way it did it was basically by um, getting into the computing system and causing some inappropriate kind of behaviors of the of the equipment itself. Uh, so uh, that could have led to very serious consequences, of course. But the case is very interesting because, of course, Israel and the U.S. deny that it was actually there. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so uh, most forensic analysis of the attack clearly points back there, but uh, they don't. They they will not own it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe there are reasons for that, but it, it, it does seem on the surface that there is some logic to the idea that if, if our enemies are, are vulnerable in this sense, if this can, can safeguard our national security interest, then maybe we want to consider it. But what, what, what gets overlooked in, in that equation? Well, what gets overlooked, uh, and I think this is one of the big pieces, is that the very same computer systems that are being used by our enemies are also being used by us. And so if you attack a computer system, uh, most of these uh, attacks have what are considered a virus or a, a malicious intent to them in the sense that they can spread. So if you attack um, a military installation, for example, it's unlikely that that is going to be limited to only damaging things in the military installation. Uh, So when you think about it in the first instance, you think, oh, not a problem. Uh, They're our enemy anyway, so if we cause collateral damage that's associated with their infrastructure, uh, maybe that's even a good thing. of course, that may not be the case if it ends up infecting hospitals and surgery wards. Uh, I don't think anybody would see that as a reasonable amount of collateral damage on such an attack. But it gets even more interesting because that very same virus doesn't stop at its borders once you've released it into the enemy's territory. It uh, continues along on the Internet and often comes right back to us. Well, and I guess, too, that, I mean, the danger if we're going to, to play this game, and, and certainly it would seem then if, if Canada is willing to engage in cyber warfare, then we're a legitimate target for cyber warfare. And so does, does it in a way maybe make us more vulnerable? I actually think it has two uh, consequences as a result of that. Um, the first one is I don't know if it makes us more vulnerable. Uh, it does in the way that I've just discussed it. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it takes away our moral high ground on other people uh, attacking us. Uh, sort of, if it's good for you, then it should be good for the enemy as well. Uh, I think the larger problem, though, is that as soon as you start to endorse these kinds of activities and you start to move forward with those uh, kinds of initiatives, they don't actually protect you in any way, shape, or form. They're definitely intended as attacking weapons. So um, it's not going to protect you unless... 
because the virus that they would be using to attack you is already in your computer system at that point because there's no sort of first strike capability in all likelihood these viruses are already out there and around this malware is already out there and around Mm -hmm. i I think a, a third aspect of this is once you endorse it now you're known as a country that does do cyber attacks which means that i think you become a platform potentially for other uh state and non-state actors to say to launch attacks out of Canada and say it wasn't us obviously Canada endorses it and so here's an example of the Canadians doing it when it could very well be coming from a very different source than Canada yeah that's that's a good point now what's also interesting and you point out in this report that there is no international treaty that that governs the use of cyber weapons what are the consequences of that And, and do you think there needs to be some international treaty on this yeah, I do. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be easy to get. Um, so, But I do think that that's something we need to have a discussion about. If you're going to introduce a new weapon into warfare, uh, it's going to fall under the rules of war. Uh, if the rules of war are silent on it, uh, there's no guidance on how, when, and why you should ever use uh, these kinds of weapons. You can imagine a world that, uh, you know, allowed um, the uncontrolled or unregulated use of chemical weapons, for example. Uh, we're just never going back to that stage again. At least I don't think we are. Uh, but that's essentially uh, the World War One kind of analogy that uh, we're creating now in the 21st century. Right. How much of what Canada decides is going to be shaped in part by what our allies decide to do? Where, where, I mean, where's, where are the Americans at, the Brits at, uh, other NATO members, etc.? Well, that's a really good question, a really hard one to answer. Yeah, um, I suppose so. If, if nobody uh, admits to the use of these weapons, um, and most don't even admit that they're working on developing these weapons, it's pretty hard to really answer the question of what our allies are up to. And I think that that's another factor in maybe the unintended consequences. As one of the one of our allies or us develops cyber attack weapons, what happens if one of those weapons ends up harming our allies? And I just think that we really need to be very very thoughtful about where we're going to. Uh, when we're going to start using these uh, weapons, when we're going to deploy them, and what are the rules of engagement? Yeah, some pretty big questions. Again, people can read this uh, study. It's posted at policyschool.ca. Professor Barker, thanks so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate this. You're very welcome. All right. Uh, that is Ken Barker, professor of computer science at the University of Calgary, author of this report done for the School of Public Policy and also for the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, uh, looking at the risks of a cyber attack strategy. That spent four weeks at number one on the Canadian charts, reached number eight on the Billboard charts. A a big hit for the Stampeders, Calgary's own, the Stampeders. Uh, They broke up in the late 70s. Got back together, though, in in the 90s, as a matter of fact. 
And they've been going strong since then. So really, this is a band that dates back to the mid-60s. And they are still going strong today. They are in the midst of a tour, which brings them back here to where it all started in Calgary this coming Sunday, June 16th, at the Jack Singer Concert Hall. Joining us to talk about what a ride it's been for this band. Very pleased to welcome to the program Rich Dodson. He is a singer, songwriter, producer, guitarist, founding member of the Stampeders. And in fact, uh, the song we just heard, he wrote that song as well as several others. He's on the line with us here this afternoon. Rich Dodson, it's so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Boy, that was a nice introduction there. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's it must be something for you. I mean, you're, you're traveling all over Canada, all over the place, but to, to come back to, to Calgary, you know, where, where it all began, how special right. is that? Oh, it's always it's always great to get back to Calgary. And, you know, I mean, we're, that's our roots. We're a Calgary prairie band. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, you know, no. I mean, it's always it's always fun playing out west, and boy, the attendance has been really good so far. So it's pretty been a really good tour. So uh, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing all our old friends and everything back in Calgary, and and uh, having a good uh, good show. Well, I guess those are the two main ingredients of a successful tour. You got to have a, a band that's excited to to keep to keep going, and, and fans that are excited to come see. You. And uh, certainly, we got both here. Well, we've been lucky. Uh, you know, the health is holding out, and. Uh, you know, the vibe is good. We still enjoy it. Have a lot of fun, and uh, and uh, looks like the fans do too. <laughs> yeah, they do. What, what do you think it is? I mean, you know, there, there's obviously that deep connection with the band, uh, and and certainly here in Calgary, it's a very strong connection. You you feel that that relationship as well? Well, we just you know, in uh, basically 1971 and on, we we toured the whole country back and forth every year, played everywhere. So I think that's been a key. Every year we did a cross Canada tour and built that that uh, strong fan base. So everybody's got a Stampeder story of where they saw the band at their arena or high school or whatever. And uh, so I think, you know, not doing the move to L.A. and all that thing, I think ended up being beneficial for us. So, you know, we stayed in Canada and... Um, it's been, uh, you know, really great. Yeah, and, and that's got to be a dilemma for, for any big musical act is, you know, having those roots in Canada, the success in Canada, the fan base in Canada, but, you know, I'm sure the record labels, the executives, they're, they're pushing, got to get in the U.S., got to go down to L.A., yeah. right? Yeah, well, that was the thing. You got to get that American radio play to get the get it, get Canadian radio. So uh, it was that circle. But also, you know, it's such a big market down there. So sure. no, I mean, we played the states a lot. So well, yeah, I mean, we, Sweet City Woman, that was a big hit south of the yeah, border too. Huge. Yeah, yeah, it was huge. Yeah, it was a real door opener. But uh, you know, when Wild Eyes happened, everybody started showing up. So mm-hmm. that was the that was a, a key tune for us too. Also, so. But, uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, we toured the States relentlessly. We were doing at least 250 dates a year, so and uh-huh. we played everywhere. So, uh, and it was great. Well, and, you know, we talk about, I mean, it's been over 50 years, obviously, since the band came yeah. together, but not, not 50 years continuous, because obviously there, there's a big chunk in there where, you know, you guys went strong for a good uh, 10 or 12 years, and then, you know, as, as bands do, right, people go their separate ways. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's just the business itself. I mean, it has that dip up and down. We went through that disco thing or whatever. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, and I was with the band for 13 years, and I always wanted to get into a little record production and all that. So I, I, you know, I mean, uh, the band went, I, I left in 78. The band went to about 82. 
but I knew we'd probably get back together again. You know, the nucleus, uh, Kim, Ronnie, and myself. And, of course, that happened in 92. And, uh, you know, the first stint was like 13 years for me. And then the second stint, well, what are we now? I don't know, 23 years? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, uh, no, and it's still, you know, lots of fun and enjoyable. And, you know, and I, I, like, I like the trio. It's always been my favorite. Mm-hmm. So. It was interesting because it was like you guys kind of reunited on a TV show, didn't you, in 92? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> we were invited on the Deanie Petty show to uh, basically talk about, I mean, I was invited on anyway, just to talk about what I'm doing now and all that thing. I think they had Lighthouse on and some other bands. And uh, and to my surprise, uh, out walked Kim and Ronnie, too, I guess they, they, they got them on the show, too. So it was uh, it was really fun seeing the guys again, and uh, you know, a little jam session, and then uh, the stampede called, and basically it was the beginning of uh, some some dates, you know, and other exhibitions, the Saskatoon X, and we got a bunch of calls, and then uh, you know, we thought, oh, it'd be fun to go out and uh, do a few dates, maybe this thing will go for five years or something, and then, but whatever, it's just been uh, steady every mm-hmm. summer. So, yeah. What about for you? I mean, are you still writing? Are you still producing at all? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing a little writing in that. I mean, Ronnie and Kim are a lot more, probably a bit more active than me. But uh, no, there's lots of stuff. You know, uh, we we've, we we do quite a few new tunes on on stage, and uh, you know, we did a we did a, a full fledged album, I guess, in '98. But you know, it's been the ones since and. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I was, you know, I mean, it's it's going to be our fiftieth anniversary coming up, so I, you know, we we thought it might be a good idea to round up all those semi unfinished stuff and mm-hmm. uh, maybe put together an album. So, so it's in the works. Yeah, I mean, isn't it funny with the business because touring is still touring, performing is still performing, but yeah. other otherwise, it seems like the business is unrecognizable from what it once was. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, you're just not too sure really what you do with. Uh, I mean, uh, the uh, record labels are sort of in survival mode disarray it's changing you know it's just we're in this streaming uh situation right now it's you know i guess it's spotify youtube it's a it's a whole different thing right now i mean my daughter has her her parallels band they do new retro wave or whatever and they go out and play all over the states and europe and everywhere and they put it all together themselves so that's sort of like how it's going yeah, but Which, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we've always been a sort of a do-it-yourself band too. You know, that's we've, true. We've always had our own label and uh, distributed by a major, but we've always sort of been on our own. We've never really been in the click, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so we've when always you guys, been outsiders, right? So, what was that first big break for you guys after you you first came together? Uh, well, after we first came together, well, I guess. Uh, you know, it's called the internet. <laughs> yeah, I got a website up really fast and just, you know, a lot of our old pictures and I had a lot of that stuff. And, you know, we just got our faces back up and online and basically started, uh, you know, we, we call the fairs and festivals and all that. And, hey, we're back. And no, you're not. You can't be the <laughs> original band. You must be a tribute. No, it's the original band, da-da-da, all that. So we had to basically go out and... Uh, re uh re uh, invent ourselves yeah. you know and get out there and uh, and reestablish the fact that it's you know the original band back and then the fans start coming out and uh, yeah it's been gangbusters ever since but big thanks to the internet yeah it's you know it's a lot different than it was i guess back in in the early 60s right when you guys are yeah. you know how do we how do we make that jump we want to be uh, right the canadian beatles right 
You got it. Yeah. Whereas right now, you know, I mean, we're self-managed and, uh, you know, we work, we work with all the different booking agencies, but we're self-booked and, you know, sort of like a, sort of like a blue rodeo thing. You know, they do all their own thing and everybody does that now. So, uh, so that's, it's, it's really nice having that independence and just, uh, just go for it, work hard and it all comes together. So. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it was interesting, too. I was reading uh, an article about you guys that, that you were you guys were, were driving in, in your old smoker when you yeah. heard uh, Sweet City Woman playing on the radio, yeah. a New York radio station. I mean, you think of all the years of success, but back then when you're just you're trying to get to that level and that feeling that, holy crap, we've made it. That must be incredible. Yeah, we were driving back, I think, from Kingston, Ontario, back to Toronto and... Uh yeah, around two in the morning, and uh, we managed to get WABC fading in, and uh, da da da, number one in New York, Sweet City Woman, da da da. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big buzz. Yeah, I mean it was it was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean uh, yeah, it was, you sort of had the feeling like, well, I guess this thing is really going to come together. So, yeah. and then the American tours started and all that thing, and we got won Juno Awards and. Yeah, I know it was a big, big turning point for us. Well, yeah, and these songs—I mean, these songs never really went away. And you know, yeah, I yeah. still, I still hear them on the radio all the time, which is great. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and the power of music. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. All right, well, it's going to be a fun. Well, you guys are really busy this week. You're playing Calgary, as mentioned, June 16th yeah. at the Jack Singer Concert Hall. But you, you got Red Deer, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, St. Albert, Leduc. So you guys are all over the place. Yeah, Saskatoon, Regina. We're doing them all. And I like this too. This is really a good down to earth barnstormer and great turnouts. And uh, it's nice just to get back to uh, reality, you know, and get right back up, up and close and up front with the fans. And we love doing the meet and greets after the old pictures and all that stuff. That's fun. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. Well, congrats on all the success and uh, more details again on the tour. Uh, Stampeters.net is the website. Rich, it's uh, been a real honor. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Rob, and a big hi to everybody again in Calgary. There you go. Rich Dodson, uh, one of the founding members of the Stampeters. Uh, he did vocals, guitar, wrote a lot of those songs, uh, done a lot of production, really done it all. So pretty cool guys. So, yeah, today's actually an off day for them. They perform in... Um, because it's St. Albert tomorrow here in Calgary on Sunday, June 16th at the Jack Singer Concert Hall. And, you know, and I got to say, too, what was really cool, just kind of a little behind-the-scenes snippet. So, yeah, I, I became aware the Stampeders are going to be performing in Calgary. I thought that would be fun. It'd be fun to chat with these guys, right? And you can tell why after listening to them. Uh, so on the Stampeders website, like for a lot of bands, you know, you find there must be a press contact, media contacts, and way reaching them. So they've got, I don't know if it's agent or whatever. So there's some contact on the website. I send an email, say, hey, and I'm a talk show host in Calgary. We'd love to interview these guys. Like, I swear to God, like literally like 15 minutes later, my phone's ringing. And I answer it. And he's like, oh, hey, Rob, it's Rich from uh, the Stampeders. <laughs> All right, well, let's make something happen. So that was pretty cool. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.